0: good evening so i am here um for a couple reasons one being that uh ricardo saw weaker vessels aimed at women and he'd wanted me to teach that and so he left town because he was kind of afraid um stuff might get thrown at him so He is actually in Corvallis, or was, I think he's actually flying home right now. Um, He was with the football team up there, and then is actually preaching at a church that we're good friends with called Doxology in Corvallis, Oregon. So he's there, and I am here. My name's Tyler Johnson. I'm the lead pastor of Redemption Church. If you don't know this, or many of you who even attend here on an ongoing basis don't fully understand it. Redemption Church is a multi-congregational church. I know Ricardo says that every single week when he's up here, but we have six congregations. Two of them are in planting phase. Flagstaff, Vince Garvey, who came out of here and you guys as Redemption Tempe really planted that church in Flagstaff. It's going great. We have Redemption West Mesa, which is a bilingual congregation on Southern in Gilbert that's just getting uh, started and getting some good footing under them. And then we have four established congregations, Gateway, which is out by the Williams Gateway Air- Airport near Queen Creek, our Gilbert congregation which is actually North Gilbert, North Chandler area, Tempe and Arcadia. Arcadia is East Phoenix. So I actually oversee all of that. There's lead pastors in every one of those churches, like Ricardo's the lead pastor of Redemption Tempe. So my role is fairly unorthodox in that I am not in a pulpit, uh, Sunday after Sunday, any place I kind of lead the leaders lead and vision and direction and I'm pretty behind the scenes. So I'm actually here more than uh, many of you guys would know, but typically I'm just in a corner, uh, talking to somebody or observing some things and then talking to ricardo after the fact so it's a delight to be with you guys i want to draw your attention to a couple other things well let me say this before i do i was about to forget this last week ricardo did a vision message for here for redemption tempe um, giving you a preview of a series we're going to start after the first of the year called building a stronger church if you did not listen to that, or we're not here last week, get online and listen to that. As you go out the information table, there's some cards there that say building a stronger church. You all are entering in to a huge moment to develop ownership of this church with deep belief, and we have huge optimism that the best days of this church are in front of it, and you guys have amazing days behind you and in an incredible foundation set, but we're calling all of our congregations to greater ownership, and Tempe has an incredible opportunity in that, so I encourage you to listen to that as well as pick that up next week you all have a turkey drive here long-term partnership with the Rio Vista Center who's been serving faithfully for years in South Phoenix you guys give them turkeys every year for Thanksgiving to give them to families in South Phoenix we have committed to 350 turkeys all the pastors here believe that is a really low number for what Tempe can do so we want to see like 700 turkeys and they have to be frozen so next week when you bring them on Sunday don't bring a cooked turkey or a lukewarm turkey a frozen turkey There'll be a truck here set up to put all those turkeys in. Also, next Saturday, there's an event uh, that Redemption Tempe is partnering with David Platt and Francis Chan. If you don't know those names, they're incredible Bible teachers, incredible pastors. that have started a movement called the Multiply Movement. And the idea of it is all based around discipleship. Disciples are ones who follow Jesus. And Francis Chan and David Platt are saying, and disciples, based upon observing what Jesus said, are ones who also make disciples. So they're starting this multiply. There's going to be a simulcast here next Saturday night from 7 to 9.30. So if you're in this room, you're new to it, you're going, I just want to learn how to follow Jesus. This would be a great place for you. If you're in here and you go, I've been following Jesus for 35 years, and you know that God's called you to make disciples, amazing spot for you to be, amazing spot for redemption communities to come uh, connect with ryan arneson or benjamin jensen afterwards they know a lot about it but get it on your calendar next saturday 7 to nine thirty p.m here's the last announcement this wednesday is first wednesdays redemption tempe does these faith and culture nights This week we're going to look at a very controversial topic and a very controversial public policy topic of immigration. So we're going to look at how should Christians look at controversial topics like this? How do we view government? How do we view this issue of immigration? So this Wednesday night, I'm actually leading that discussion. Uh, Be in this room, there's food as well as child care from 6.30 to 8 p.m. So. That is now on you, that you have listened and you've put those things in your calendar. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Um, we are going to be in First Peter chapter 3, continuing on in our series through the book of First Peter. To set context for this, uh, this verse that we're going to look at tonight, we're looking at one verse. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, and it starts with a likewise. The likewise actually refers back... ...to some verses before in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. So that's what I'm going to read. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, and we're going to get ourselves started. 1 Peter 2, verse 21 and following. For to, you, for t- for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you... ...leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps... He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you are straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseers of your soul. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask you, as the God who's in control of all things, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the wonders in your word. Father, I ask you right now for the power of the Holy Spirit in this moment of preaching that your word uh, might go forth in power, and God, it might sink so deep within us that we are not just hearers, but we're doers of these words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So First Peter, as you look at a book, you always want to get context. First Peter is written to a suffering people, a suffering church who are suffering, in fact, because they're Christians. Peter pens words, this letter, to write to these churches to give them hope that they would be a people of God filled with hope in the midst of suffering. And he writes that for a very specific purpose that you saw some verses earlier in which he tells us that our identity as a church, that the people of God in the world exists to be a royal priesthood In a holy nation, a royal priesthood in a holy nation, a people who belong to God, who exist for the sole purpose to speak to the world by their lives and their mouths how great God is, to proclaim the excellencies, Peter says, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's the purpose. The purpose is that the church would be pure in a picture of what Jesus is doing in the world. Many theologians have said that the church is both a sign and an agent of the kingdom of God. Basically, here's what that means. By the very way we live our lives, no matter what the context, we are saying to the watching world or the, what the Bible calls to the nations of everybody that looks upon us, we are saying to them, this is what life looks like under King Jesus. And this Jesus is, in fact, the one who created all the world And the one who sustains at this very moment, upholds the entire world. This is what life looks like under him. And so we model before the world. This is what family dynamics look like. This is what race relations look like. This is what business practices look like. This is what life looks like under King Jesus. So Peter is writing this, and he's saying to the church, in order to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation, this picture of people proclaiming the greatness of who God is, I'm going to instruct you of how to live under authority. So this whole section in First Peter is about submission. How do you come under authority? How do you come under the authority of the governing leaders, under governing authority, wives? How do you sit in a family? Where the husband has been established, the head of the house. How do you come under that? And now he speaks the very same language to husbands. Here's the model, both to slaves, to wives, and now to husbands. The model that we read in 1 Peter chapter 2 is Jesus. Jesus is the model to the slaves, to the wives, and to the husbands. And this is why he starts in 1 Peter chapter 3 Likewise, You can look at the verse here. 1 Peter 3, 7. This is the English Standard Version. It says, likewise. So in the same way, following Jesus' husbands, live with with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This verse is packed with powerful stuff, and it's all about Marriage but has implications for all of life. I am 35 years old been married for 10 and a half years I'm right at the point in my life where many of my friends who are getting married around me Have now had substantial struggles in their marriage and are now getting divorced When you see that in some of your best friends you begin to reflect and go. What is it that happened? What is it that fundamentally went wrong and you listen to them and you're going I know I'm no better than them What is it? And at the same time, I'm reflecting upon how, honestly, moments just get better with Haley and I, my wife and I, as we go through life together, I'm beginning to see the beauty, and we're going to talk about this later, of covenant commitment. Of covenant commitment, of knowing that this is a permanent commitment. It's a lifelong commitment of experiencing that. But many of you, because of much of our culture, many of you in this room have misguided of marriage. And I want to say that to you before we get into this why this message is so important is that many of you do not have God's perspective on marriage Many of you in fact think marriage is enslaving and it's constraining and it's oppressive I don't want to enter into that. You're not alone The culture feels like that and people have felt like that for history Chris Rock, right the great modern-day prophet Chris Rock says this Do you want to be single and lonely? Or married and bored. Now, that's a little disorienting to me because I think about that and I go, bored. That seems like the last word you would use of marriage. Bored? There was a, a moment where my wife and I, with her sister, were watching one of the Bourne movies, Bourne Identity movies, Jason Bourne, action movies, and we walk out of the movie and my sister-in-law, I'm asking everybody, "How? what did you think of that? And she goes, that was boring. And I thought, like, there's a lot of words you could use. I didn't like it. It was violent. It was stupid, even. It's a favorite word amongst my wife and her sister. It was stupid. Um, but boring? Like, the last word you could use about that movie. It was action packed from beginning to end. It wasn't boring. That's what I feel like with this. Marriage is boring? Are you serious? Like, the last word you could possibly use is boring. But many people view it in such a way. And I'm gonna show you that in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7, there's this incredible layout of what a fruitful marriage ultimately looks like. And let me tell you this, if you get your view of marriage wrong, there's a reason you're gonna get it wrong, fundamentally. And I'm telling you, if you get your marriage, your view of marriage wrong, you have your whole view of life wrong. It affects the entirety of your life. Now, I'm not saying you have to be married in order to experience the full life that God came to give. I'm saying if your view is messed up the way I know it would be messed up, your view of life is ultimately messed up. So this is a verse we definitely want to pay attention to. So we read it, 1 Peter 3, verse 7. When you get to a passage like this that has high levels of controversy around it, about phrases like weaker vessel... And that your prayers may not be hindered. There's a lot in that of um, biblical scholars will approach this in different ways. Not diametrically opposed way. So if people take the scripture seriously, keep those uh, br- that verse up there for me. Not in diametrically opposed way. If you take the scripture seriously, you're going to land in generally the same place. But there are nuanced differences. And I'm going to invite you guys into my struggle with some of these words and some of these phrases. But one of the great ways to study the Bible is to study different translations of it. So I want to put up there now the King James Version. Um of this same verse and read it we're going to keep this one up there If you'd keep this up there the whole entire time we're going to work through just this verse, but it says this Likewise ye husbands i'm really shakespearean. So I like king james language. I'm kidding. I'm not shakespearean, but likewise ye husbands According to knowledge giving honor unto the wife is unto the weaker vessel And as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Here's what we're going to see. Christian husbands will dwell continually with their wives. Secondly, we're going to see that Christian husbands, this gets the word knowledge, know their wives with God's eyes. They know their wives with God's eyes. Christian husbands then honor their wives And then the last thing we're going to see is that there's this circle that happens that your prayers may not be hindered, this circle of communion that has to do with your utmost communion with God. So let's get after it and do some work here for the next half hour or so. Husbands dwell continually with their wives. Christian husbands dwell continually with their wives. That phrase is translated in the other versions, likewise, husbands, live with your wives, now, Peter is presuming something here that is radically counter-cultural to the times. Here's what he is saying. Christian husbands will keep living with their wives, which here's the statement. Marriage, from God's perspective, who made all the world and this institution, marriage is a permanent, lifelong, exclusive union. Hear those words. Marriage is a... Permanent, lifelong, exclusive union. When I think about permanent, lifelong marriage, there's pictures that come to my head of couples that I've come across married 63 plus years holding hands. One in particular, and this man is a colonel, so he's no slouch holding his wife's hand, walking in day in and day out to church, seeing them go all throughout the city together, and them looking me in the face and saying, the one thing we've learned after 63 years is if people applied the wisdom of the Scripture to their marriage, not only would it last, but it would flourish. Here's the amazing part of many people's misview of marriage is it's not that odd What's odd, actually, culturally speaking, is what Peter's presuming here. What's odd is permanent, lifelong, exclusive unions... Never in the history of the world has that been the predominant view of marriage in the history of the world. It wasn't even in biblical times. In Matthew chapter 19, there's a group of people, religious leaders at that, who come to Jesus and they ask him, so tell us about when a man can divorce his wife. Now you got to understand something. Even the religious Jews at that time, The question was not if you can divorce your spouse, but it was how petty of a reason could it be that you could divorce your spouse? Jesus goes on to say his view of divorce. And what he says is, listen, what God has joined together, let no man separate like this is a permanent, lifelong union. Jesus, when he's asked that question in multiple occasions, gives hardly any outs. The only one he does is that if somebody refuses to live in the covenant and sins sexually and continues to disobey the agreement that they made, then the covenant has just been broken. But otherwise, there is no reason. Now, that was so radical at that time that even his disciples come to him in Matthew chapter 19 and look at him, and here's what they say verbatim, if such is the cause of a man with his wife... It's better to not marry at all. His disciples came to him and went, if marriage is that radical of a commitment, this is better to not marry at all. Now, I want you to see something. This call upon husbands to be in a permanent, lifelong union has astounding implications for women. In all of the cultures today outside that don't hold this view, where polygamy is rampant or where having mistresses is no big deal, it's not looked down upon, let me tell you who loses power. Not the men, but women. Women are powerless in this culture, like they were here. This was a radical statement. Saying submit yourself to the governing authorities or wives submit to your husband was not radical. Saying to husbands, live with your wives in a permanent, lifelong, exclusive union where you honor them. That was like, what? Because women had no power. This statement of dwell with your wives continually is radical. And massively empowering to women. If you went over to ASU tomorrow... Into the women's studies department, or the history department, or whoever it is that studies these things. And you said, what was it that empowered Western women? You would hear things like the right to vote, which is true on a lot of levels. The right to vote, you'd hear things like they began to have access to education that they never had before. True, on some level. They have job opportunities now that they never had before. True, but what caused all of that? What enabled all that to happen? Why did it flourish here and hasn't in so many places around the world or in history? As early as the 1870s, 50 years before women were given the right to vote in the United States, there were Indian reformers. One in particular, Kashab Chandra Sen, who said this. He had realized that the social institution that liberated Western women 50 years before they even had the right to vote, he's looking at this going, You want to know what's empowering these Western women? Monogamy. Monogamy. Permanent, lifelong, exclusive union. Think about this, okay? If men can go do whatever they want, they can have whatever mistress when they want. When they walk home at night and their wife says, Hey, listen, get off your tail and do something. And he goes, Eh, whatever. See it and he can just write a certificate for a divorce because she disrespected him or he can go I'll forget you. I'll just go off with my mistress. I have a wife, but I have one. I love that is somewhere else What does that do to the woman? Zero power. She has no power in anything. She has no say she has no power physically. She has no power Intellectually, she has no power socially. She has no power emotionally No power morally, but when you lock it in, think about this. When you lock it in and you go, actually, when you enter into this covenant, the doors open, you sign the piece of paper, you walk into a room where the back door's closed. The back door's closed at that moment, so now in this, she has all types of power. Get off your tail and do something. Uh, where do I go? Nowhere, do something. Right? It is incredibly empowering to women. Beyonce knew this, right? Beyonce knows this. You know, a few years ago she had that song, all the single ladies, all the single ladies, all the single ladies. And here's what the song's about. She says, I'm up in the club. There's this guy dancing with me. My my ex-boyfriend comes in and he's all frustrated that I have a new guy with me. And she says to him, what? If you liked it, if you liked me, You should have put a ring on it. You should have put a ring on my finger. If you, Why does she say that? Why does she say that at that moment? Because here's what she knows. Listen, you're acting like you can go do whatever you want with no commitment. With no commitment. That massively is disempowering to me. I can do nothing. You go do whatever you want. If you like me, make a commitment. If you like me, make a covenant with me. These are the things, covenants, are what societies and cultures are built on and can ultimately flourish. If any of you guys have ever paid attention at school at all, you've heard the name Alexis de Tocqueville. He was this celebrated French magistrate who came to the United States. He wrote a book called Democracy in America. And as he was in it, and he was trying to figure out what is making America become so strong. Here's what he says. If anyone asks me what I think is the chief cause of the extraordinary prosperity and growing power of this nation, I should answer that it is due to the superiority of their women and their family life. Well, what, what causes that? He says, certainly of all the countries in the world, America is the one in which marriage, the marriage tie, the commitment, is most respected. And where the highest and truest conception of conjugal happiness has been conceived. Where the marriage tie is the strongest. And where they experience flourishing happiness in marriage. Societies are built around covenant. in covenant commitment. God's all about this. Church, he's all about this. He's all about flourishing. He's all about joy. And so this makes us face this reality. This duel between covenant in consumerism. A culture like existed at this time when Peter wrote this was people were massively consumeristic about marriage. You could just write a certificate of divorce for anything. That's consumerism. That's disposing of people uh, on both sides, but mainly women. You can just dispose of them whenever you want. It's consumeristic. If there's something better out there, I'll go for it. In today's culture, we're delaying marriage. We're not valuing marriage. We're letting it go on. We disrespect it. We think it's enslaving when, in fact, it's the very thing that liberates us. So now what do we do? is we just don't get married at all. But we have all the benefits of marriage, all the fruits of marriage. It's where statements like friends with benefits comes up. So now you expose yourself completely to somebody, okay? You are totally open and exposed. You commit on everything, but you're unwilling to make that final covenant commitment to somebody. You don't have any type of relationship. You're in a relationship that's defined by consumerism. Because what that lack of commitment does, it allows both of you at any moment to go, if anything better ever comes along, I'm out of here. You're objectifying the other person. If anything better comes, I'm out of here. God isn't into that. And let me tell you what you miss out on. Okay, You say the back door is always open in case something better is out there. And you move from person to person to person, consumeristically, you miss the power of covenant. Because if that back door is closed, right? And my wife and I have last night, let's say hypothetically, my wife and I last night have a tiff. And we, I turn to one side of the bed, she turns to the other side of the bed, and we don't talk. I get up early, I leave for the morning, go out, and the reality is, I come home, intention is like you can cut it with a knife. Well, I leave trying to get away from it. Here's the problem when the door is closed on the other end. I got to go home, right? Like I walk in and I'm going, okay, I'm still here. It still feels like this. And finally, there's just this flood of forgive her or better yet, confess your own junk. It's like, okay, I can't handle it anymore. I'm a puke, right? And at that moment, all of a sudden people begin to open up. Transparency happens in Covenant. You open up, you get to know trust is built through covenant, which means you get to know somebody better. The people that function consumeristically in relationships never experience true relationship. They never know what it's like to go through the hard stuff, to deal with real human beings, with real warts and real wink wrinkles and real challenges. But in covenant, you do get that opportunity. So here, Peter starts and he says, listen, monogamy is the issue. It's permanent, lifelong marriage. And there's a huge problem with separating and getting all the benefits without the commitment. Vishal Mangawet, says this, The separation of pleasures of sex from its bonding glue. The separation of the pleasures of sex from its bonding glue, which he means marriage, covenant commitment, is turning men into boys, playboys in fact, who take little or no responsibility for the women they love or the children they produce. It is also turning the West's strong women into single mothers and desperate housewives. Peter has an extraordinarily high view of marriage. He then says, Christian husbands, you are to dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Now, this is where I'm going to let you come into a little bit of the wrestling match when you're trying to interpret a passage. Basically, the two views of knowledge, some of it's translated understanding, and there's two um, real opportunities. One is that you would dwell with your wife in a way that the knowledge is applied to her, that you know her, that you understand her. The other idea is that you dwell with her long-term with God's eyes, from God's vantage point, with the knowledge from on high. Now, I prefer that view, that basically you live with your wives as a Christian, viewing this marriage from a Christian perspective in a way that's shaped by the gospel, that's shaped by the person in life of Jesus Christ, and I'll tell you why. Is I think that view encapsulates and encompasses the other as well. It demands it. So here, fundamentally, is where I'm saying there's a why behind this. It's not just understand your wife, but then you go, but why? There's a, a famous book out right now that started with a TED a TED talk by a guy named Simon Sinek called Start with Why. On his website, he says that his whole organization exists to inspire people to do the things that inspire them and then together change the world. So he wants to inspire people according to what inspires them. And when people are inspired by what inspires them, together we can change the world. And he believes that the way you fundamentally inspire people and move people is you start with the why. Why are we doing this? Now, the reality of what I'm saying to you is Peter is saying, let me tell you the why Behind husbands living with their wives with knowledge from the perspective of Jesus. So, this is with the knowledge of Christ, with the knowledge of the gospel, which the knowledge of the gospel mystery. In Ephesians 5, which David read up here in between songs, Ephesians chapter 5 says this to husbands Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. For her. Sacrificed himself. For the sake of the church. Husbands. Love your wives in such a way. Now let's look at the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus. Exemplifies. In visible form. In human flesh. What God is really like. Remember when Jesus stood before Philip. And he said. Philip. If you've seen me. You've seen the father. Jesus lives out the way of God. And from Genesis to Revelation. God shows himself. As a Giver, and not just as a giver, but as one who is willing to sacrifice for the blessing of the other, let me take it even a step further all the way through in the character of God, you see God binding up his joy in the in the blessing in the flourishing of the other, so God gives sacrifices himself, enters into even suffering so that the other might flourish and he beforehand even bound up his joy in the other person's joy. Now, that is very counter to sin. Here's what sin does. Sin turns in on itself. Sin begins your eyes turn in on itself. You disobey God, the God who is constantly outward focused, thinking about the blessing of others and love, and our eyes, as we sin against him, turn in on ourselves, and our primary lingo then becomes me, mine, I. Now, what's profound about that is Jesus says the way you're supposed to live your life is to love your neighbor as yourself to husbands in ephesians chapter 5 he says love your wives husbands as you love your own body and then his logic in ephesians 5 is nobody just disregards his own flesh you care for it and you nourish it what's amazing in marriage is you'll see a guy who's been married and then like six months later you're like dude you're loving your flesh more than you've ever loved your flesh before right like you gain weight they do all this but in marriage In marriage, what happens is you get married and when you drive home, you start thinking, man, I've worked a long day. I hope she has something planned for us, right? And as it goes on, now you have kids. I hope she's got the kids under control because it's all about me, mine. Look at what I did today. What do you have for me? Now, that's the nature of sin, not just in marriage, in all of life. All of a sudden, everything becomes about you. You walk into a room, everybody's looking at you. No, they're not, right? Everything becomes about me, mine, I. Sin bends itself inward. I sit with my kids. My boys are at age of being intelligible and we'll talk all the time and I'm trying to get them to understand the me, mine, I language. It's gonna make you miserable. Like God didn't create you. He created you in his image as a giver. If you transition that and you think it's all about you, you're gonna end up being miserable. And then they'll look at me and go, What's miserable, mean, dad? you are like, I'm um, unhappy. You'll never be happy by functioning out of the logic of me, mine, and I. It will break you down. It will break your relationships down. In the end, you won't experience the life Jesus came to give, which he said, I came to give you life and give it to the full, the abundant life. You'll actually live the life of the enemy who's convinced you of me, mine, and I. And the Bible says that he's actually out to seek, to kill, and to destroy. To rob you of joy. God's here to give you joy. And he says, turn your eyes outward. Sin says, turn your eyes inward. And that is massively destructive to you and to marriage. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, Self-centered, self-centeredness is a havoc-wrecking problem in many marriages. And it is the ever-present enemy of every marriage. The ever-present enemy of every marriage is self-centeredness. It is the cancer in the center of a marriage. And when it begins, it has to be dealt with. Now, what is, happens to cancer that's undealt with? It kills people. But Keller says self-centeredness is ever-present. Remaining sin, even in a Christian's life, it's there and you constantly have to deal with it. My constant temptation of my flesh as a husband in marriage is going to think, me, mine, I. And he says, you have to get on top of that and actually communicate to yourself, you have been redeemed. You have been transferred out of this domain of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus. And in his kingdom, his kingdom isn't about me, mine, and I. It's about the other. It's about considering the needs of others as more significant than your own. It's, in fact, binding your joy up in your wife's flourishing. That's the knowledge. Living with her according to the knowledge, according to the shape of Jesus, the structure of who he is, the way of the gospel, that the way down is, in fact, the way up. In which I'm willing to enter into this and Men are called to now hear this. This is crazy because women have just been called to submit. And here, what we see fundamentally is that men are called to submit or subordinate their own selfish desires for the blessing and benefit of their wives. You know, before Ephesians chapter 5, when he tells wives to submit to their husbands, he says, the verse right before that, he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a mutual submission. Even in marriage, it's spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in regards to sexuality inside marriage. Is that the man, doesn't, the man doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And the wife doesn't have authority over her body, but the husband does. There is mutual submission, which doesn't take away headship. I'm going to get that in a minute. But the men in your very role are called to submit and subordinate our selfish desires for the blessing of our wives. Now that is very contrary To the way many people view headship, many men take headship, which is taught in the Bible. It's very biblical. And they go, I'm the leader, so therefore it's all about me. Jesus is going, no, you're not living according to the knowledge of me. The knowledge of the gospel. Because the knowledge of the gospel would say, even when you have a position of authority or power, you have it for the purpose of service. So men, hear me on this. When the Bible calls you as head of the family you know what that means you need to lead in when you understand your own sin you need to be the lead repenter you need to repent and confess your sin faster and more vocally than anybody else in your family you need to be the lead forgiver that you're the quickest to forgive and extend grace the same way jesus did you're the lead servant this is the way of jesus I submit my own selfish desires because my joy is built up in the benefit of the other person. That's what headship means. Is that I am willing to sacrifice myself for the good of the other. Power, I am convinced, is one of the most misunderstood things in all of Christianity. People view it as evil, as bad. The reality is it can be used for infinite good or for infinite evil. And when given for ultimate good, it means more service, more love, more blessing, more benefit. Because you're leading and repenting. You're leading and forgiving. You're leading in using all that you have for the benefit of the other. Here's the one thing I would love Redemption temp to C. And certainly the husbands in here or those who are going to be married, but everybody. Understand that sin wants to turn its eyes inward upon you. Where grace in Jesus, in the gospel, is here to liberate you to actually think about others more highly than you think about yourself. Fight sin's temptation to turn your eyes inward. He then says, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. So here's now he starts playing out, what does this actually look like? So you live according to Jesus. What does it actually look like in the day to day? Give honor to your wife. Right right now in election season, there's all of these dishonoring ads. Actually, when one comes on and it's just a pure endorsement, like a candidate endorsement, that's giving logical reasons of why this person is endorsing this candidate and they're giving honor to them, right? Here's what giving honor means. To honor someone is to attribute value to them, to esteem them as having value. I like those ads. Whether I agree with the person or not, I like those ads. The honoring ads, as opposed to the dishonoring ads. Sometimes it's easy to understand a word when you understand its contrast. To dishonor someone is to view them as having little, lesser, or no value. That's what a lot of these ads sound like, right? Like, this person has no value at all. He says, honor them. Throws in the face the whole idea of headship, of saying, this woman is lesser than me. No, Honoring them is saying you actually esteem them higher than you. The giving of honor, the seeing of value in this person. And Peter says we should do that to all people. In 1 Peter 2.17, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So why to honor the wife? He says, honor the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now, highly controversial statement, right? Okay, one of the things I want you to understand is that this verse does not say give honor unto the wife because she is weaker. It doesn't say that. It says unto the weaker vessel. So come into my wrestling match once more. Here's the way this is interpreted a lot of times. One is that the weaker vessel communicates, if you take the literal translation of these words, it communicates like fine china or a really esteemed pot. Right? Fine China. What do you do with fine China? You esteem it. You talk about it. You bring it out at huge, nice occasions. It's fine China, which is true. I believe he's saying in honoring your wife, you esteem her to the highest level. I think that's true. But I don't think that's the full meaning of what Peter's getting at here. Another idea is that vessel, which this is true, vessel most oftentimes in the scripture is used of body. So in First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says that you are to have self-control over your own vessel, over your body. In 2 Corinthians, he speaks of our bodies as weak vessels. Both males and females have weak vessels. So a lot of people think what they're saying here is that the woman is actually just physically weaker. Which that has some merit. Because through the history of the world, a lot of times why the men rise to the top as leaders is because they're stronger. Not necessarily smarter, not necessarily superior, but just physically stronger. And they can, you know, meatheads can just go, oh, out of my way. We lead, right? And they lead. But I don't think that's, I think that's true. You want to honor them as a feminine woman. But I think there's something deeper here. I do think the vessel means body, but the question is weaker. If 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we're all weak vessels, we all have weak bodies, then why is the woman here in 1 Peter established as weaker? Well, contextually, just before this, he's just said, wives, submit to your husbands, Take on this role knowing that you are not inferior by any stretch of the imagination. By any stretch of the imagination. In many notions, you're smarter, you're superior in every level, but you have taken on this weaker role. Like there's leadership in every institution there is. There needs to be leadership. They are subordinating themselves. And I think here's what he's saying. I've just told the women to do that. And in so doing, they are submitting themselves under you as a husband don't you husbands dare do anything but honor them as weaker vessels which what's crazy is the women come under therefore weaker they're coming under fulfilling their role in obedience and now he says honor them esteem them highly subordinate your selfish desires even under them that you might exalt them now going back to the structure of the bible Always. Take Philippians 2 as an example. Jesus Christ, who is in the form of God, he's God, does not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but humbles himself, comes into our mess of sin, leaves perfection of the Godhead. He has no needs of anything. He enters into our mess, humbles himself to come down, then humbles himself to a criminal's death on a cross. Why? That we might be freed. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that we might have eternal life. He comes under us for our blessing. And Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before Him. He bounders joy up in our blessing and in our benefit. And here, women take the weaker role, and He says, Husbands, honor them and exalt them as the weaker vessel. That's the structure of the Bible. Is that you're constantly counting the needs of others as more significant than your own. So husband's headship in no stretch of the imagination means that you can just take your wife on a journey wherever you want to go. You do what I say. It's all about me. I'm the one who ultimately says it. No. There is a joint unity esteeming if you're honoring your wife as the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. What does that mean? Well, that's bringing in this future reality that in the future, women and men both will co-reign with Jesus. We're both heirs To this throne to rule and reign with Christ. Him is the utmost king of kings and lord of lords. But the Bible says we will reign with him. We're heirs to this promise. Co-heirs. Do you know in that context in time the only heir was a firstborn son? Son. If that firstborn son died it went to the secondborn son. If it went to the secondborn son died it went to the thirdborn son. If there wasn't another son it would not go to a woman. Here in the end we're co-heirs together of the grace of life. So what does this look like? Well, here's what it would look like in the context of marriage. Men, you honor her. You speak well of her. You listen to her. Now, this obviously then means the knowledge is that you have to get to know your wife. You have to listen to her. You have to understand her. It would mean that you would look at her and value as highly, if not even higher, her calling as much as your own. You would do what Paul says to Timothy to do in his own life, fan into flame the gifts God given you. You're constantly trying to fan into flame the gifts and abilities that God has given your wife, that you might honor her, you might esteem her. If you have children, you demand that your children speak well of her. You would bring out the best in her. One commentator says this, What a wonderful thing submission is in marriage. The wife seeks to glorify her husband, but submits to him. The husband uses his leadership to glorify his wife as he exercises leadership over her in a way that sacrifices his own personal interests to bring about the best interest of his bride. I was um, talking through this message with Benjamin Jensen today, um, who's a resident here, and he said this, Peter is not saying, just as a clarifier to end this point, Peter is not saying that women are weaker in ability or skills or intelligence or productivity and especially not in value or worth, but they are weaker positionally in that they have joyfully, lovingly submitted themselves to their husbands. They choose to serve their husbands as Christ served us. Therefore, how much more should husbands serve and honor their wives? This has nothing to do with positional inferiority. Peter's making that clear. Very that point very, very clear. This is about submission, and then husbands coming under and glorifying their wives. He then enters, enters with what I call this communion circle. He says, you live this way that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, as we end, think about this, because this is an extreme statement. Prayer is communion with God. Colossians chapter 1 says... That Jesus made us by and for himself. So our purpose in life is to have communion with God. And he says here, your communion with God, your prayers will be hindered. If you don't live this life of love to your wife. John chapter 15 verse 5. Jesus says, apart from me you can do nothing. Your communion's hindered with God, you can do nothing. Now what's crazy, if I can do nothing. To live this life, this self-sacrificial life. You're going... If you're like me, you're a husband going, I can't do that. Everything in me feels like it's pulling me to me, mine, and I. How do I think about the other is more significant than your own? And you go, I desperately need God and his power. But the funny thing is, if you don't live it, your communion with God is hindered. But as you live it, the communion channels are opened up. Whereas the communion channels open up and you ask God for help and He gives you the power to do it, more channels are opened up for more of Him. And the less you do it, the channels close. That's an amazing circle that the very life that you live of loving your neighbor as yourself, loving your wife as your own body enables you to experience fuller communion with God. Let's pray.